Welcome to the AWS Tech Chat. We're solution architects based in APAC, and we help customers adopt the AWS Cloud Platform. In each episode, we talk about the latest and most interesting technical developments in the world of AWS Cloud. We bring you the AWS Roundup and deep tech dives into topics of interest. Hey, welcome everyone to episode 31 of the AWS Tech Chat. Uh, this time around, I'm joined again here by Dean Samuels. Dean, good to see you again. We just did our AWS Innovate last week. Huh? We, we did. It seems like just yesterday uh, was actually a few days ago, but uh, great to actually be uh, on the line here again with you. Yeah, exactly. And it was exciting, right, to be live out there, out of a room, live stream to thousands and thousands of people, and we had a good chat about some of these new exciting technologies, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, just a really great way, or a different way, rather, to reach out to our customer base. You know, we do run a lot of uh, different events. I um, mean, you know, AWS mm -hmm. Summit Series, which is uh, still underway across the globe in, in, in some uh, key cities. Uh, but sometimes it's very hard for our customers to actually attend those physical events. So um, running things like the AWS Innovate uh, really allows us to reach out to a much wider audience. And we actually had listeners from all around the globe uh, during that event, which was really great. Yeah, that's exciting, yeah. And, and I know that some of it, uh, obviously it was live at, the, at that current time, but some of it will also be made available, is that correct? Yeah, exactly. So uh, we also understand that uh, a lot of our customers couldn't tune in uh, during that uh, Innovate uh, confer a virtual conference. So we actually do have uh, all of those sessions available today um, uh, via the AWS Innovate On Demand uh, site. So if you just do a search in your favorite search engine for AWS Innovate On Demand, it should take you to the right page Great. and you'll have access to you know over um, 50 breakout sessions across 10 different tracks and of course our closing key keynote which That's was right, a Dean. lot of fun to do oh yeah and you know actually it's funny because uh, we render obviously in different time zones uh, and in the America's time zone, uh, you became nearly a viral hit there for one moment. Yeah, people kept saying, you know, this guy looks like a rugby player. Absolutely, like, <laughs> I don't know if it's all for all the right reasons to be known. I mean, it was probably off topic of what we were discussing, but uh, yeah, it was good to get a mention in in, in the US. I, I am a big boy. Uh, I do have a rugby background, and uh, a few people actually uh, called that out uh, on the chat uh, uh, when we were playing in the US. That's hilarious. That's hilarious. And so, uh, Ollie, we were in Singapore last week. Uh, we're now in Hong Kong this week. Where will Ollie be next week? Well, yeah, that's a good question. You know, uh, these Asia Pacific marriages, mm. they're, they're exciting by bringing us around in the region. And uh, so I'm excited. Uh, next place I'm traveling to is Australia mm -hmm. uh, for our developer days there. And that will be in Melbourne. Okay, and Dev Days, what's Dev Days all about? Well, so Developer Days, or Dev Days in short, as we call it, is really to dive into uh, the AWS services from a, a much more technical, deep technical perspective, and especially from a developer's perspective, mm -hmm. to kind of have a look at, uh, okay, I understand AWS uh, services, understand what they do for me, but, uh, you know, how do I really plug that together? And we go really deep uh, down to like a 400-level kind of conversation of seeing not only the, the why and when, but really the how and, you know, how mm -hmm. some of these edge cases is really how that works out. And as the name indicates, with a very strong focus on what that means for a developer, uh, what that means if we want to uh, build applications quickly and fast, and uh, how that would turn out. In that regard also, I'm super excited because this time around I got uh, Jeff Barr with me. You know, Jeff has oh, been great. around yeah. for a very long time in AWS. So if you happen to listen to this podcast in Australia, 
Uh, don't miss it to sign up for the Developer Days in Melbourne if you're around. Uh, great, uh, great time to also meet Jeff in person. That sounds really exciting. Yet, yet an, uh, another example of uh, trying to reach out to a diverse um, uh, uh, audience that we have in terms of our our customer base and really targeting developers and how yeah. they can really build and uh, deploy applications in a very uh, efficient and effective manner on the AWS platform. That's right. And we might actually get into some announcements that will help our developers uh, uh, iterate and innovate very quickly on on the platform. How, how about we do that? Yeah, that, that, that's right. I, I think, you know, talking about a, a lot of these announcements, but talking also uh, about some of these new things that we're launching, I wanted to go deep on a, on a variety of different things, you know. And for example, um, you know, if we talk developers, one of the things that I'd say is super important nowadays is, is an API, right? That's yeah. absolutely, you hear that everywhere, right? Um, you know, everything is an API you yeah. know, in, in AWS. Maybe we can uh, take a bit of a step back first, Ollie, and you, you can let our listeners know, you know, why? Why is it so important that organizations like Amazon and also AWS, whenever we create uh, services, it's all delivered through APIs. That's right, yeah. And so, you know, it's, it's funny to, to think about it, right? People just say AWS as an acronym right now, mm. but it obviously means Amazon Web Services. Mm. Since everything is a web service, everything is an API. All our services can be consumed as an API uh, from our end customer's perspective and, and uh, the listeners like yourself. Uh, having said that, actually, you know, the interesting thing is uh, we believe in what we're building also internally. So if you, if you look at the way we build our services or interfaces internally, we have that concept of APIs too. And, mm. uh, you know, like you mentioned, like why, why, would we, why would we do that? Well, it, it comes with so many benefits in the sense of as an organization, I can now start to build different kinds of products and services and actually front them with an API. I can hand those out mm. uh, to other developers and they can integrate against my product, my service, or whatever it is, yeah. without the need to understand really the underlying databases or concepts or, or programming frameworks that are used. And so APIs, in my opinion, are really a great way uh, for developers to interact with each other and also for platforms mm. to operate against each other. And uh, you know, we often just think about that in terms of an internal standpoint view right like okay great I create microservice architectures and that allows my internal teams to build against each other much faster um, but an API just like Amazon Web Services are APIs for for you as customers mm. uh, become APIs for other end users out there that might not be part of our company right to now start using our services and and integrate uh, integrate against those right Absolutely, and, and and you know the APIs you you, you mentioned with regards to AWS um, uh, technology. So you know whether it's the Amazon EC2 service, whether it's Amazon S3, yeah, you know, moving into obviously Amazon Sumerian, and the wide range of um, you know hundred plus services that we have um, as part of our platform, you know, are delivered uh, via these APIs. And so customers and partners can actually build their own applications, integrating with these APIs, mm -hmm. um, and not have to rely on, for example, management consoles to actually do access and management to the to the services um, when we have released these services though uh, they have been what we call publicly available basically yep. using a public IP address uh, that customers and partners will use to actually interact with the uh, with the services but what we've actually found is that you know as customers are and partners are deploying their own applications more and more on mm. the AWS uh, cloud environment into their own VPCs they still want to access and interact with uh, a lot of our own services like the ones I just uh, mentioned before but they 
actually want to do it in a very secure, private way. They don't want yep. to have to allow, for example, internet access uh, to their VPC in order to access these public uh, IP addresses or publicly available uh, APIs. Yeah, that is right. I actually have customers, as a matter of fact, who run in our VPC or virtual private cloud, never connected to an internet yeah, gateway. Complete right. private setup, complete Absolutely. private environment. Yeah, many customers like that. Obviously, uh, a lot of highly regulated um, workloads that we also have that you know have a strict requirement not to have internet capability or, ac or access, but those customers still want to access our services. So um, a, a while back, end of last year, in fact, we actually launched a service called the AWS Private Link, mm -hmm. um, otherwise known as VPC Endpoint um, Services. Yep. And in fact, um, it was uh, earlier than the end of last year where we did make available um, DynamoDB as yep. the first um, uh, VPC Endpoint Service. And so what that effectively meant is that customers who had deployed their uh, compute environment, for example, EC2, um, into a VPC could access DynamoDB using a private IP address within the VPC rather than connecting to a public IP yeah. endpoint for DynamoDB. So it really uh, made or kept or retained all the the, uh, the traffic flow within the VPC itself and not actually mm -hmm. going over a public IP. Um, with the announcement last uh, end of last year, though, with AWS Private Link, and I won't go into too much detail because Dr. Pete and yep. uh, Shane actually covered this in yeah, a bit of did. detail in the last uh, last episode, uh, but uh, specifically on the API gateway with uh, with Private Link. But just to recap, you know, Private Link, AWS Private Link, is a highly available, scalable technology, and it basically enables you to privately connect your VPC to supported AWS services. But I think. The more uh, interesting um, feature of the private link is it also allows you to connect to third-party services as well. So whether those right. th those uh, uh, services are delivered through the AWS marketplace. Um, so for example, we have partners like Cisco and Computer Associates and so on who actually deliver their SaaS-based uh, uh, offerings through marketplace, which can be made available through a uh, private link. Um, but then we also have other customers and partners who are delivering their own applications through a private link uh, uh, option. So for example, uh, we have the likes of uh, Snowflake. So Snowflake yep. is a partner of ours and a customer of ours, and they provide an enterprise-grade uh, cloud data warehouse. Um, uh, it actually integrates or in, um, uh, works with Amazon S3. Well, they can actually provide that uh, managed data warehouse over a, a private link into a customer's VPC. So once again, mm -hmm. they don't have to traverse a, a internet gateway or an internet connection. Uh, Twilio is actually another uh, customer of ours. Yep. And they basically provide a developer platform for communications, um, provided as a service, like a PaaS type platform. And so Twilio, so basically the uh, Twilio uh, offering is available over a private, uh, a, a, a private link as well. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, now going back to some of the AWS services that are actually uh, available in private link, there are actually quite a range. I won't go through them all, but ones that have uh, interest to me is things like CloudWatch. Mm -hmm. So you can imagine that uh, customers can actually use uh, CloudWatch events and CloudWatch logs and then also CloudWatch um, to, uh, to they can use their EC2 or VPC environment to talk directly to CloudWatch and do the logging and access event calls without actually having to traverse the internet gateway, requiring things like NAT instances to actually get access to the uh, access to the internet. You now you have things like Amazon Simple Notification Service. Um, so once again, as customers actually use that uh, messaging service to um, uh, to to deliver messages over different protocols, they can access that API endpoint through a through a private link. Um, so 
we'll start to see more and more of these AWS services actually be made available uh, to customers using uh, private link. Yeah, really exciting. And I think that that really opens up that entire conversation again, you know, like how do we integrate things together? There's an entire ecosystem now mm. of different partners that we can tab onto, custom applications that we can build. And, you know, funny enough, when we say custom applications, that mm. doesn't necessarily need to be another organization, could be different divisions exactly. within your own yep. organizations in, in, in that regard. And, you know, the other thing that you got to keep in mind, um, in the VPC, we obviously also allow the connectivity of a direct connect, right? right. The ability to connect your on-premise uh, network uh, into your virtual private cloud. Well, with that private link, we can now give those on-premise applications and environments also access to those VPC endpoint services via private link, right? right, that, right. That's really useful. Mm -hmm. And then the other thing that says, you know, if, if you want to get started with uh, AWS private link, uh, relatively straightforward, right? You create an interface VPC endpoint for a service within your VPC. Uh, this then creates that elastic network interface in your subnet uh, with a private IP address that serves as an entry point uh, for that traffic that is then destined uh, to the service. Now, with that in mind though, Dean, mm -hmm. right, I'm, I'm a developer, so mm -hmm. there's one other cool thing about it is that I can actually retain the DNS names uh, within my applications for those AWS services that are supported by private link, right? Because right. I don't want to go ahead and now I need to change all my code or mm. hopefully just a <laughs> configuration file right. <laughs> with those <laughs> endpoints. You know? <laughs> um, but you know, one option that you that is actually known as private DNS associates as a, in, in a private host its own within your PPC allows you to just uh, um, contain a record set of that default DNS names, retain mm. it, right? So for example, if you have uh, EC2. US-East1.AmazonAWS.com mm. uh, that would now resolve to those private IP addresses of that endpoint network that interface within your within your VPC. So it allows you to make those requests to the service using the default DNS hostname instead of that endpoint specific uh, DNS hostname. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it makes use of uh, private hosted zones within a VPC and um, we've spoken about this particular topic in earlier um, uh, podcasts, so I advise True. our listeners to, to take a look. Um, but what it's essentially doing is it's implementing what we call split horizon DNS, where mm -hmm. you can use the same name, like the one you mentioned for EC2, which is the standard service endpoint for uh, EC2 in a particular region, US East 1 um, in this particular example. So you use that name internally in the VPC itself to do a DNS lookup, and it essentially maps to that private IP, but if you use that exact same name outside of the v uh, VPC, so maybe on the internet, it will actually map to the normal public IP uh, address Very space cool. for that EC2 service. Very cool. And so Dean, what about using VPC peering, which is not a great mm. to, uh, functionality in AWS private link? You know, like I'm, I'm thinking like, could, could an existing VPC peering configuration uh, be used and they now want to use services that sits in another VPC mm. uh, with private link? You know, like uh, you know, take for example, landing zones, right? Dr. Yep. Pete and, and Shane spoke about this landing zone concept in our last a podcast episode, and I, again, you know, recommend to listen to that if you want to know more about it. Uh, but Landing Zone is one of those set of best practices and prescriptive guidances for our customers wanting to have that multi-VPC, multi-account architectures, right? Mm, yep. So so how does that work together? VPC peering, AWS private link, how, how does that work? I'm glad you asked, yeah. <laughs> because <laughs> they actually do work very well together. Like you said, um, you know, we might have customers who already have this VPC peering arrangement set up, so connecting uh, to their various uh, uh, VPC for certain uh, certain reasons, might mm -hmm. have a shared services uh, VPC. Uh, well, fortunately, uh, the AWS Private Link actually does have uh, intra-region VPC support. So right. 
need to be very specific there. Within the single region, if you have multiple VPCs um, with VPC peering set up between those VPCs, you can actually enable AWS private link for any of the services you want to make available across the different uh, VPCs um, as well. Um, Intra-region VP, intra VPC peering um, support for private link has to be uh, using C5, uh, I3 metal, which is a bare metal instance, and mm -hmm. M5, M5 instance types only at this point in time. So currently we don't have any inter-region, so across uh, two different right. regions, um, uh, private link support. Um, so now, whilst we are talking about networking, I do want to talk about one really cool feature that we actually announced last week that quite a number of my customers had been asking for over a period of time. All right, all right, go for it. Dean. All right, so I'm very, very, very happy to talk about um, the ability for our customers to actually bring their own public IP address space very cool. to AWS. Um, so we actually launched a, uh, a new feature, bring your own IP. Now I must um, um, say it is in preview mode at the moment and it is only available in the US West mm -hmm. um, Oregon um, region. But essentially what this allows customers to do, as the name suggests, is they can bring their uh, large CEDAR address space, um, the public IP range that they mm -hmm. obviously own, yep. um, and they can actually uh, make that available onto the AWS uh, um, uh, region, in this case uh, Oregon, and make their own application available using the same IP addresses that they might have previously used on-premise or yeah. uh, in, a, in a colo and, and, and so on. It's essentially allowing them to use maybe their trusted IP addresses um, that they might be already whitelisted, for example, right, with their right. partners and, uh, and their customers. Very interesting. So obviously a lot of uh, interesting additions to all your APIs, IP, IPs and VPCs. Maybe let's zoom out a bit and uh, talk about computing at the edge, or otherwise known as? Edge computing. Edge computing. Yeah. And it couldn't be a proper podcast without talking about some of these new additions to our global infrastructure, right? Mm -hmm. uh, so you might be familiar with our edge locations or services like Amazon CloudFront. And so we, again, added a variety of new edge locations, right? Uh, go as close to the end customer as possible. Mm. Uh, we added uh, new edge locations in Denver in Colorado, which doubles our capacity mm. in Denver. Uh, we added a new edge location in Frankfurt, so that's the seventh one in the city. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and also also an edge location in Taipei, which is the third one in the city right there. And also very exciting, uh, in Cape Town, we added our second edge location in South Africa. Mm. Uh, the first one was actually in Johannesburg. We launched that uh, in June 2018. Uh, June 2018, right? We right. keep launching really, really yeah, quickly there. Absolutely. And you know, we, we took some we took some data points there, and customers that are delivering content in South Africa are already seeing up to 75% latency improvements on average. That's, that's fantastic. Cool. And, and it's, it's also great to see that we're not only expanding the global infrastructure in, in the case of edge locations uh, across to other cities, but we're also mm -hmm. growing the infrastructure in existing locations that uh, we operate in. You know, obviously as the services are used more and more by customers to deliver that, uh, old, uh, that, that best customer experience in terms of accessing web content mm -hmm. uh, through the edge. Now, I must admit though, Ollie, when I spoke about edge computing, I wasn't so much talking about our edge locations, I actually ah. 
mean edge at a customer's location. For example, their office, um, you know, it might be their distributed devices that they might have right. uh, deployed out there. You know, how can we bring AWS to those type of customers? Oh, so you're, you're talking things like AWS Greengrass. I am yeah. talking about Greengrass yeah. indeed. All right, all right. Well, you know, for those who have watched our AWS Innovate closing keynote, I tested Dean last week <laughs> with his whiteboarding skills you on did? Greengrass. How did I do? Uh, I think you did, did pretty I well. Yeah, yeah. You did, you did excellent. You I did, did rehearse, excellent. I did rehearse. You, 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 you're a lot, you, your drawing skills are a lot better than mine, a lot cleaner for <laughs> <Right>. sure. <laughs> but you know, talking about AWS Greengrass, you know, I think it's actually really cool because AWS Greengrass is that piece of software that allows you to run local compute, you know, messaging, data caching, synchronizing, and even machine learning and foreign capabilities for connected devices in a, in a mm. secure manner at the edge locations. So, for example, I can have connected devices to what is called my Greengrass cores. So that's applying, that appliance that would run that piece of software mm -hmm. that I have sitting at the edge, could be my office or wherever I want to have it. And that can now run AWS Lambda functions. It allows me to keep device data in sync uh, between the devices at the edge, mm. the edge, the core itself, and even my cloud environment if I want to do so. Um, and also communicate with devices securely at the edge location even when not connected wow, to the okay. internet. Yep. Right, so that allows me to say I have logic in AWS Lambda function, I deploy them out to my Greengrass core, uh, they then run on that Greengrass core and now the devices can talk to each other through that Greengrass core with that logic without even the need for an internet connectivity unless I really want to synchronize something back to a cloud environment, right? Right, right. And so using AWS Lambda, Greengrass now ensures that any kind of IoT devices, for example, can respond really quickly to local events. Uh, and we can run those functions on the Greengrass core to interact with those resources, even if they're intermittent, uh, if we have intermittent connectivity, for example, or if maybe, and you explained that uh, really great last uh, last week with the mm. laws of physics, laws of economics. And uh, the laws of? The Were you paying attention? The, was it policies? <laughs> yes, I'll, I'll, I'll take that. Go. Regulations. Regulations. Yeah, the law of the land. Go. The law of regulations. <laughs> yeah, we, we won't go into it now because we've got a lot of other things to, to cover, but uh, highly recommend that our listeners go check out the uh, Innovate closing keynote um, using uh, AWS Innovate On Demand. Uh, and yes, we, we go into a little bit of more detail about the architecture around uh, Greengrass. I think the important thing to uh, note uh, there, Ollie, is, is Greengrass is software. So customers That's actually right. have a choice of the device they actually want to deploy to. So obviously we're working with a lot of, uh, or partnering with a lot of device manufacturers um, and uh, who are using Greengrass to run things like Lambda functions at the, uh, at the edge. Very cool. And uh, in that regard though, Dean, we had an even more interesting announcement of something that happens at the edge, didn't we? We absolutely did. And uh, just like uh, a lot of our services, which have a dependency or leverage other services, um, we've actually got the AWS Snowball Edge uh, device. Um, mm -hmm. And this actually uses uh, Greengrass uh, uh, as, as part of its uh, component. Right. So, uh, you know, a a a AWS Snowball Edge is actually a data migration and edge computing device. So it's a physical uh, device. It's a mm -hmm. 100 and ter uh, sorry, 100 terabyte of capacity uh, device, and it supports actual computing tasks like AWS Lambda functions, and that's cool. why we've termed it AWS Snowball Edge. And we you know, you know that funny thing about Snowball, though, is if, if you watched uh, Andy Jesse's keynote last year at reInvent, mm -hmm. when we the, the previous year when we launched those Snowball instances, uh, which was primarily targeted just against storage, right? And right. Our customers asked us. 
can we actually run some compute on it? Yeah, can, can you put some green grass on it? <laughs> some lambda functions exactly. on it? Yeah. Yep. yep, well, we've actually gone even one step further. So not only are you able to run lambda functions on the edge, right. but you can actually run your full EC2 instances right. on this particular device. So how cool is that? <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, absolutely. These are Snowball Edge devices, you know, powered by an Intel Xeon D processor, runs one, uh, 1.8 gigahertz, supports any combination of instances, EC2 instances, um, that can consume up to 24 virtual CPUs and 32 gigabyte of memory. Right. Um, so basically what you can actually do is you can build and test uh, Amazon machine images or AMIs mm -hmm. in the cloud mm -hmm. using the standard way with the EC2 service. Yep. But once you, you're satisfied with that AMI, you can actually then preload them onto your Snowball Edge device uh, as part of the ordering process. So we'll actually deploy it onto that device for you. Mm -hmm. uh, you can then use um, the EC2 compatible endpoint that's exposed by each device to programmatically start, stop, resume, and terminate instances just like you actually would uh, right. if the instances were running in the cloud. So you can use the CLI commands to build tools and scripts to manage your fleet of uh, of devices. Very cool. So it's uh, yeah, just like another EC2 instance. And I had a quick look here at the uh, the instance specification. So mm -hmm. just like we have those different instance type names, mm -hmm. uh, the Snowball ones are called SBE1. So right. we have like these SBE1, small, medium, mm -hmm. large, all the way to four extra large, which would allow you to run those 16 vCPUs and 32 gigabit uh, of memory on yep. that, that Snowball Edge instance. So that's really cool. Mm -hmm. But so, Dean, why would a customer actually want to run a VM on a Snowball device? Yeah, well, you, you mentioned that, you know, a lot of customers were asking when Andy Jassy um, spoke about Snowball um, Edge, being able to run those compute you yeah. know, and Lambda and being run, able to run applications. Why? You know, why do you want to do that? So, for example, you might be a customer who, who you don't simply want to move data um, from your on-premise storage mm -hmm. environment, so do a bulk copy from on-premise to mm -hmm. Snowball and actually then move it um, uh, to, to AWS. We actually do have another device, which is just a, the um, uh, AWS Snowball, which is a separate right. device. It doesn't actually have compute um, available on it, and it is for those use cases for customers to move data, simply move mm -hmm. data from one place uh, to another. But let's say, for example, you're a customer who wants to, to maybe actively collect information maybe about on-premise hardware so if mm -hmm. you might have you know pcs and servers who are going to be constantly reporting in information and you want to collect that somehow so you can actually use ec2 to act as like a monitoring solution to collect right. that information store it on the device and then optionally ship that device to the cloud at a later time or you might actually want to do some data processing so a lot of customers may not want to ship all the data that they have on-prem to the cloud as is. They want to manipulate or, or, mm -hmm. or process that data in some way. Maybe do some uh, anonymizing, maybe do some encryption um, before it's actually stored and then uh, and then shipped. Um, so they can actually leverage the Snowball device, a Snowball Edge device to actually do this. Um, so uh, there's actually um, options around pricing for the Snowball Edge device, depending on your particular use case. You're actually billed for a one-time setup for mm -hmm. each job. Uh, after 10 days, you'll actually pay an additional per-day fee for each device. But for those customers who actually want to run the device on-premise for a longer period of time, um, you can actually pay an upfront or as part of a... Uh, upfront as part of a one or three year uh, commitment. Oh cool. Yeah. Um, and so what basically that allows customers to do is you can do your as much of your development and testing on an EC2 instance running in the cloud, but you can also do that same testing and running of EC2 instances 
at the edge as well. And in fact, uh, the Snowball Edge device also includes, in addition to uh, Lambda um, uh, capabilities and an EC2 compliant uh, endpoint, it actually also has an S3 compatible mm -hmm, endpoint mm -hmm. as well. Um, so it actually makes use of, you can make use of existing S3 tools and applications. And cool. so if we couple that all together, mm -hmm. you know, Lambda being available in the box, you know, we've spoken in previous podcasts about SAM local, the ability to do development with uh, Lambda functions off the cloud. Yeah. Um, so coupled with uh, with that, um, you, you're able to now develop, deploy, and run applications with select AWS services uh, all running uh, at the edge. Right, right, right. And so if you also then combine that with other options like VMware Cloud on AWS, so a, a partnership uh, we have with VMware where they provide a service of their own technology running on, on the in an AWS region, it really takes the concept of hybrid, edge and cloud computing to the next level. Indeed, indeed. And I think it's always important uh, to mark, uh, our. we want to give our customers choice, the freedom of mm. choice to uh, see what they want to run, where they want to run it, have strong control uh, around how they do that, where they do that, but give mm. them flexibility around you know, being able now not to only run Lambda functions, but maybe run a complete app as an EC2 yeah. on your edge. How cool is that, right? Exactly. And you know, Dean, talking of putting things into Boxes. <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk containers. Right. So I, I, I'm excited about containers always as developers because uh, it makes it easy for us to really ship our code right? You and deploy it out. Right? You build your code in your laptop, you put it in the container, you test it, you ship that container out and it just works. Right? That's, that's really mm. cool. No dependency issues and problems. Uh, really no reason why I shouldn't be using uh, something like containerization technology as a developer mm -hmm. uh, if I don't want to go full on serverless with something like AWS Lambda, for yep. example. But if I have a if I have a container, so we obviously have those different container services. Uh, one of the services that that I'm quite excited about is AWS Fargate, and right. uh, so AWS Fargate allows us. Uh, it's basically a technology for our existing Amazon ECS, our Elastic Container Service, uh, that allows you to run containers in production without actually deploying or managing underlying EC2 instances, right? So if you had a look at Amazon ECS, mm. generally you create your cluster, and then with the help of EC2 instance, you define that, uh, and then you can deploy your container. So it helps you with that scheduling of containers and managing your containers, but you still define your underlying EC2 instances. And with Fargate, we actually abstract that away. So mm. it allows you to focus uh, really on designing, building your applications instead of you know, thinking of all that underlying infrastructure uh, that would sit underneath it. So no more EC2 instances right. for you to so look at. Right, so you don't have to worry about picking EC2 instance types, the number of EC2 instance types, um, how they're clustered together. Fargate's going to do that all for me. Correct, correct, correct. And um, with that in mind, why do I want to talk about Fargate? Well, as you mentioned earlier, we always launch uh, new services into new regions. Uh, AWS Fargate is now available in Tokyo region. Right. in the Singapore region, in the Sydney region, and in the Frankfurt region, in addition to the previous regions uh, where it was available. That's you know? fantastic. I'm a bit biased here, but great to see that uh, a lot of the Asia regions Absolutely. being represented there. Absolutely, yeah, and I'm, I'm keen to see all the uptake here in the Asia Pacific region. Mm. 
And you know, Dean, I'm always excited to develop code, but one of the other areas that I'm really fond of is machine learning and artificial intelligence. And we spoke about this before, but our vision really is to put machine learning into the hands of every developer, every mm. data scientist, pretty much every IT professional. And we do so by providing many different application and platform services and creating integration to many great machine learning and AI frameworks out there, out there through uh, our AWS platform. Um, and But you know, let's focus a little bit on one of our great platform services, Amazon SageMaker. Uh, you want to recap a little bit on what Amazon SageMaker does? Yeah, absolutely. And and you know, you, you're spot on in terms of uh, putting um, uh, artificial intelligence and machine learning into the hands of uh, customers. But we also want to put it into the hands of you know everyday um, users who may mm -hmm. not have specialist skills in deep learning and machine learning, which can be right. quite uh, uh, complicated. Um, so you know, SageMaker is is uh, one of our uh, offerings that allows us to do that, to make it available to that everyday um, user. Because SageMaker allows you to build, train, and deploy machine learning mo models, especially um, um, with built-in uh, uh, algorithms. Right. So basically, let me uh, go a little bit deeper on that. A machine learning al algorithm uses example data to create a generalized solution, what we call a model, right. essentially. Um, the model addresses the business question you're trying to actually answer. Um, after you create a model using um, uh, sample data, you can then use it to answer the same business question for a new set of data. This is also referred to as obtaining inferences. Um, so a good example would be um, image recognition. Right. Um, so if your business, you're in the business of detecting um, uh, celebrities in, in photos, for example, um, rather than having to code from scratch, uh, SageMaker will actually allow you to build and train that type of model, which mm -hmm. will recognize celebrities um, in images that you actually pass through, um, pass through the service. And so Amazon um, SageMaker makes the most common machine learning algorithms automatically available to you. Cool. So whilst customers can actually deploy their own frameworks, like you mentioned before, onto mm -hmm. EC2, mm -hmm. and we um, have a, a bunch of AMIs, Amazon Machine Images, available in Marketplace, uh, for example, that provide mm -hmm. these frameworks, Customers don't want to, don't need to worry about again uh, EC2 and what instance types and so on. They can actually use SageMaker, which provides yeah. support for a range of these different uh, frameworks. And with those inbuilt algorithms, I really just need to kind of provide it with data, right? I provide SageMaker with data. Uh, SageMaker will then train my models out there with these inbuilt algorithms, so I, I, uh, I, I can really build machine learning models without the need to understand the algorithm, right? That's that's pretty solid. Yeah, absolutely. And it includes supervised algorithms such as uh, XGBoost and linear classification uh, to address recommendation and time series prediction problems, mm -hmm. um, but also unsupervised learning. Uh, in other words, the algorithms must discover the correct answers on their own. Right, so I don't yeah. need to label it and tell it. Exactly, you know, exactly. Yeah, yeah. You know, such as uh, with k-means clustering and principal component analysis uh, to solve problems like identifying customer groupings based mm -hmm. on purchasing behavior, uh, all the way to computer vision problems like object det detection, like I mentioned earlier. Yeah, yeah, very cool, very cool. And in that regard, uh, we obviously try to continuously enhance some of those inbuilt algorithm, uh, add new features, functionalities to it. So uh, I wanted to talk about uh, three different enhancements on deep AR, blazing text, and linear learner algorithms, which right. are some of these inbuilt Interesting, algorithms. Interesting uh, names there. Right? <laughs> <laughs> 
So let's uh, let's start with DBR. DBR generally used for forecasting, you know, in use cases such as you know improved supply chain management, better product demand forecasts, etc. And so, if you think about the data sets that you get there, very often these are incomplete, and that leads to incorrect uh, forecasts, right. and that's obviously uh, basically invalidates the entire value of sure. running an ML model yeah. if I want to predict forecasts, and right? And so and making predictions <laughs> doesn't really help. <laughs> exactly. So uh, defeats the business purpose, right? Yeah, I, I like I like your idea of so, you know the way to define it, right? We solve a business problem, mm -hmm. right? And so what we did with Deep AI and SageMaker, uh, these missing values are now handled within the model. So you know, don't sweat it if you if you have some incomplete uh, data sets here. Uh, we make forecasting now easier. We will accurately understand uh, some of these values that are going missing um, by using actually the underlying component is a recurrent neural network, an RNN uh, model to help us uh, understand that a little better. Uh, one of the other enhancements that we did at the D Deep AI algorithm is actually the ability to support custom time varying features, such as you know seasonality patterns that vary at different levels of a hierarchy across different kind of time series. Because often, very often when we do uh, forecasting or prediction, it's, it's very often tied to seasons. Mm. Uh, very often, that, you know, there are certain patterns that, that we understand here. And Deep AI now also supports grouping of those time series within multiple attributes, also known as multiple groupings. And what that means is with this enhancement, DeepAR can now learn group specific behavior, including those seasonality patterns for better forecasts. Right, okay. And with Amazon SageMaker, uh, if you're not familiar with it, we also have the ability to actually have uh, run notebooks, Jupyter Notebooks, Jupyter, yep. top of it, and we provide also now a notebook that can show how to process real-world data set with deep AR. We released that, and that contains also a data set of an hourly electricity consumption of 370 consumers, and it has been used in multiple academic publications. Mm. So if you want to know how that deep AR algorithm works with the, some of these new enhancements, that notebook is a really great place to get started. Right. And so I said, Dean, the second algorithm I want to talk about is blazing text. And Dean, I know you have a, a blazingly fast Australian accent <laughs> sometimes. Yep. Maybe you want to share the enhancements to our blazing text algorithm. All right, I'll give it a go. I'll try and not talk in a blazingly fast uh, <laughs> way, but I can't get rid of the Australian accent. Um, whether that's good or bad, I'm not sure. But uh, let me let me give it a go. Um, you know, blazing text uh, um, provides an optimized implementation of the word to vec algorithm. Right. Um, it basically takes advantage of GPU hardware. Um, the algorithm learns high-quality distributed vector representations of words in a large collection of documents. What does that basically mean? So it's generally used in right. natural language processing tasks such as sentiment analysis and entity uh, recognition. Uh, the first enhancement with blazing text in SageMaker enables generation of meaningful, meaningful vectors for out-of-vocabulary words that do not appear in the training mm. dataset. Uh, second, high-speed multi-class and multi-label text classification is supported with blazing text. Uh, the goal is, uh, of text classification is to automatically classify the text documents into one or more defined categories. Blazing Text can now train a text classification model on more than a billion words in a couple of minutes. Very cool. Mm. So we can blazingly fast learn what a document is about, yeah. understand what people are talking about, exactly. build those vectors. Very yeah, useful. And classify it in, in a certain way. Yeah. Absolutely. So uh, if 
If, of course, uh, you want to have a fully managed service, have a look at our Amazon Comprehend uh, service, which uh, allows you to really to get access to our natural language processing uh, uh, tools uh, off, uh, as part of Amazon Comprehend. But if you want to build your own variation, have a look at Blazing Text. Very useful. Mm. And then I mentioned Linear Learner, one of the good old uh, other algorithms of Amazon SageMaker, also supports now multi-class classification in addition to the binary classification and linear regression, which was one of the first things that we launched. Um, and this is a task where the outputs are known to be a finite set of labels. So as an example, emails could be classified as, as inbox, work, personal, etc. And so with that multi-class classification, we can now uh, do that as such. And um, in that regard, though, we talked about improvements of existing inbuilt algorithms. There are also two new additions to those. Uh, so we added k-nearest neighbor and also an object detection algorithm. Um, and just to go into a little bit more detail here, uh, k-nearest neighbor, often referred to as KNN, um, are algorithms that allow us to address classification and regression problems. So, for example, classification could be unlabeled image, can be determined by the labels assigned to its nearest neighbor. That's right, mm. kind of what a KNN uh, does. Very useful in recommendation systems, very useful in things like anomaly detection, very useful even in things like image and text classifications, right? And so we added KNN as a good baseline of another inbuilt algorithm uh, into Amazon SageMaker. Uh, but the other object, uh, sorry, the other inbuilt algorithm I'm quite interested about is, uh, is the object detection uh, algorithm. Uh, Dean, do mm. you remember my uh, Sydney Summit keynote? I did a, do a few live demos there. I do indeed. Yes, it was a very interactive, entertaining um, uh, keynote. I know you did a bit of cute computer vision uh, demo during the, uh, the, the keynote there as well. That's right, mm. yeah, yeah. And for those who had the chance to not, uh, uh, were at the Sydney Summit keynote, they actually had a chance to um, throw around a few inflatables. Mm -hmm. I brought actually a, yep. a few a unicorn inflatables yeah. with me, <laughs> and we tried to live identify uh, that in the audience. Mm -hmm. And um, there was also uh, a, a special guest that looked like a hot dog man of some sort <laughs> that, that yeah. came in, right? <laughs> yeah, we had a, one of our production crew. We dressed him up in a in a funny hot dog looking costume, and he was super excited to be automatically recognized right. by and, that. And so that uh, was the purpose, right? So you had that some was the demo purpose. to detect these objects in a in an audience of a few thousand people. That's that's exactly it. So that's a perfect example of an object detection algorithm, right? You have a large crowd or you have a camera feed of, of something somewhere, and now I want to, in real time, detect objects, and not only detect those objects, but also know exactly where they were. So if part of that live demo, I had a camera that was pointed into the crowd, and as those inflatables kind of made its way down, uh, you would see the camera feed with an overlay of where that object was detected, and it was drawing a square around that object in real time to, to show you where that object was detected. And so that demo at that time, as mm -hmm. I shared uh, in the keynote, was actually done using another framework called Darknet, and I used a technique called Yolo, sorry, a technique called YOLO, Y-O-L-O, <laughs> uh, which actually stands for you only look once. Look once, okay. Right? <laughs> 
Um, but with that in mind, uh, like I said, we want to give our customers uh, choice uh, so we can use that framework, but we also want to make it easier if you don't want to install any frameworks or do any of that training as I, as I did for that Sydney Summit keynote. With that inbuilt algorithm, we now have the ability to also perform object detection with Amazon SageMaker by just providing it with the data itself. So we don't even need to actually understand that framework at all. Yeah, and so we, we've spoken a lot about uh, SageMaker, um, how it allows us to put machine learning into the hands of every developer. Uh, you know, don't have to worry about deploying their own frameworks into EC2 and using AMIs. And it has all these um, uh, algorithms and models available that customers can use. But what about even a further step up? You know, SageMaker still, still does require some level of expertise. What if I'm a customer that wants to access certain deep learning, machine learning um, uh, uh, solutions or applications uh, what are some of the options? I know there's, uh, for example, Amazon Poly for the uh, mm -hmm. uh, text-to-speech. Uh, we yep. did actually announce um, a, a service last year at reInvent, uh, Amazon Transcribe. Can you maybe talk us through what Transcribe sure. does? Sure. So Amazon Transcribe is one other of those fully managed machine learning services, as you mentioned. And Amazon Transcribe is an automatic speech recognition service that makes it easy uh, for us to add a speech to text capability to application, meaning that we can transcribe what people are actually talking about. So great to create right. text transcripts on any audio video files. Mm. And you know, if you think about what are some of these use cases of where Amazon Transcribe could be useful, well, for example, customer contact centers, call centers, right? I can have call recordings, I can now transcribe them into text and then use that to analyze uh, analyze these transcription for intelligible insights, right? right? Uh, if I'm a media content producer, I can use it to automatically do subtitling workflows, right? Mm. Or take that, some of the conversation and at least pre-curate some of those subtitles that I want to have. Right. Uh, if any kind of enterprise or legal firms very often, they have archives of recorded meetings, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Great to push it to transcribe and actually transcribe um, those meetings into useful text. And again, uh, demarcate them not only by timestamps, but allow that then to be passed on to something like Amazon Comprehend, for example, and actually get further insights into it. All the way to, you know, if I'm a marketer, an advertiser, I can enhance some of my content delivery uh, and do more targeted advertising by understanding what's going on, what's being spoken, right? T take, for example, if there's like a, you know, a sports shoe ad in the middle of a football match, right? I, I, I want to place that ad correctly and not into, let's say, for example, a cooking show. Right. I might not have that metadata, but if I have the video file and it's streaming through it, I can transcribe it. I know what's going on now, and then I can do the ad placement, even though I wouldn't have had that metadata uh, beforehand. And Ollie, it uh, must also be said that uh, Amazon Transcribe is also now, now available in a few more regions. Uh, yep. Specifically, it's now available in the Asia-Pacific Sydney region, as well as the Canada region as well. In addition, yeah. Yeah, Great. exactly. Um, so it just shows how we're expanding the service across our different uh, regions um, based on customer feedback. Mm -hmm. uh, and so, Ollie, does that mean in the future we can re just record our tech chat and then have Transcribe write our podcast? You know reverse Amazon poly of sorts. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny, you know, and uh, <laughs> we, uh, not too long ago, Jeff Bauer was uh, changing his blog, right, uh, mm. with this little play button on top, so all of his blog posts now can be read out right. actually using Amazon poly, mm. right, so that you can create those podcasts as a blog. Maybe this is a great way to transcribe our podcast into a blog, you uh, know. <laughs> absolutely, it'll be interesting with my Australian, my blazingly fast Australian <laughs> accent, and your, uh, 
Luxembourgish accent. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. So how, how would that would pan out? I, I gotta, I gotta give, uh, I gotta have a chat with Jeff Barr about this. See what, what he, what he thinks about that interesting idea to transcribe a podcast. Uh, the reverse way that what he, what he yeah, absolutely. I mean, like, I think it'll be good to see the different ways that our listeners can actually consume the uh, the podcast. Absolutely, absolutely. Great times for machine learning. Yeah, <laughs> for sure. Oh, okay, great. Well, uh, that's probably all the time we have uh, for for this week, uh, Ollie. We covered quite a range of of, of different things mm-hmm. around being able to uh, run AWS services on the edge. Uh, we spoke about uh, machine learning and mm-hmm. artificial intelligence uh, options uh, for customers. Uh, we we spoke a, a, a little bit uh, about some of the. Um, private links private and link, APIs yeah, exactly. and, and how bringing we separate, your own IP, your public IP, IP. quite yeah, a big range of things of happening and we're not going to stop, right? Yeah, so, absolutely. Uh, but uh, unfortunately, we have run out of time. Um, so I guess we'll catch everyone on the next, the next one. episode. Looking forward to working with you again sometime soon, Ollie. Absolutely. Thank you all for listening in. Thank you. you. Soon. Bye. Bye-bye. Signing off. We really hope you enjoyed this episode. If you liked it, tell your friends, tell your colleagues, and tune in again to learn about AWS Cloud. Please subscribe to AWS Tech Chat by visiting www.awstechchat.com.